ਵਾਹਿਗੁਰੂ ਜੀ ਕਾ ਖਾਲਸਾ ਵਾਹਿਗੁਰੂ ਜੀ ਕੀ ਫਤਿਹ ਵਾਹਿਗੁਰੂ ਜੀ ਕਾ ਖਾਲਸਾ ਵਾਹਿਗੁਰੂ ਜੀ ਕੀ ਫਤਿਹ ਵਾਹਿਗੁਰੂ ਜੀ ਕੀ ਫਤਿਹ ਨਾ ਦਾ ਇਵੈਂਟ ਵੀ ਵਿਲ ਡਿਸਕਸ ਟੁਡੇ ਇਜ਼ ਇੰਟਰਰਿਲੇਟਿਡ ਵਿਦ ਦਾ ਲਾਈਫ ਆਫ ਨਵਾਬ ਕਪੂਰ ਸਿੰਘ and there will be some points we will not cover today we will cover in the upcoming episode on nawab kapoor singh anyhow this is just for the readers or for the listeners i mean because uh, end of the day if we start covering all these points we will be repeating ourselves later on so really rather than you know make this too long let's just stick to the event and what we can learn from it now the event which we are discussing today is the chota kalukara the smaller holocaust and we have the vada kalukara the chota kalukara we have four kalukaras recognized in the panth at the moment so chota kalukara comes first then the vadda kalukara then you know santali da kalukara and then chirasi da kalukara that's how it's seen today now the chota kalukara or the smaller holocaust now do you know how this actually started what when the genesis of this uh, holocaust actually began when it was actually first seeded uh i like to think that uh, the physical genocide started in 1946 but the background of it was set probably a few decades ago the chota kalukara yep uh, i think after banda singh was gone or well, whatever happened to them we discussed it already there, yes. there must have been a, a, an afterthought in the minds of the the mogul empire or whatever was left of it at that time that these people we have we might have to deal with them again Mm-hmm. That's right. Now, 1734 is the year when this Kalukar, in my mind, actually commenced. Now, how this happened was, we know the history that after Banda Singh Bhadru, you know, after he was martyred, the Mughals, the Rajputs, the Purbias, the Hindu-Muslim combined basically realized that, you know, the Sikhs are, the Sikhs are always going to be fighting because it's their ideology to live as liberated men and women. they won't stand for any you know imprisonment religious or otherwise of their minds anyhow coming down to the fact that you know obviously we had the tarasangwan incident he and uh, 21 others made the last stand this inspired the sikhs to rise up and you know convert others to sikhi battles begin and then zakaria khan you know who was compounded by the fact that new delhi the new emperor of delhi was a uh, quite aggressive towards him quite opposed to him and that you know he was confronting the sikhs from lahore basically on his own metal he decided that you know he would set off one against the other petition the emperor to allow him to negotiate with the khalsa to bring it out in the open to eradicate it on the other hand he uh, sent uh, dispatched a ceasefire uh, plea to the khalsa that you know choose a nawab someone to represent you and we can talk this out Anyhow we know how Nawab Kapoor Singh was chosen and he became a presidential figure he uh, started a republican government like Banda Singh you know keeping in concert with the Khalsas and Guru Nanak's republican tradition of you know everyone being equal and leaders being a voice rather than a dictator Now coming down to the fact that 1734 is the year now Zakaria Khan is at Lahore and in Delhi there is a lot of uh, groundwork being laid against him there are rumors that zakaria khan has formed an alliance with the khalsa to march upon the emperor of delhi now we need to remember that delhi was fast becoming decentralized at this stage the emperor was becoming a nominal figurehead rather than you know supreme commander of the mughal forces and the main reason for this was that you know aurangzeb had overextended the empire there was not enough administrative bureaucracy there was corruption 
And really, Navjeet, I guess you come to a point where, you know, when you're, uh, when your rulers are being chosen by succession, you come to that point where, you know, you're always going to have that one heir, one successor who isn't the visionary which his forebears were, you know, his predecessors were. Well, that's 100% true. You have to remember that this is how the empires, you know, they decline over the time and disappear. That's, that's the thing. So now what happens is that as this is happening, all the subedars, all the provincial governors, they decide they can, you know, strike out on their own and replace the emperor. Now, Zakaria Khan is one of these. Now, in Lahore, he was the dominant figure or the political figure in Punjab. And the higher caste Hindus and the Muslims pretty much uh, saw him as a provider of their security against, you know, any retribution from the injustices they inflicted upon the peasantry, Punjab being a mainly agriculture region. On the other hand, this peasantry relied upon the Sikhs for justice, so sort of a Robin Hood type figure. Uh, that was the you know figure of a Sikh at the time. Not exactly Robin Hood, though. So here's another thing about Zakaria. Obviously, he had a fanatical streak, but he was also a cold-minded strategist. His primary advice is now... Do you know who his primary advisors were? The two brothers who advised him on everything he did, whose advice he sought before taking a step forward? Uh, I think they were uh, Jaspat Rai and Lakpat Rai. Yes, Lakpat and Jaspat. Now, here's the thing. The Chota Kalukara is obviously an event which does not serve the purpose of the people rewriting Sikh history. So it's sort of eradicated from, you know, what they believe to be Sikh history or what they believe to be authentic Sikh history. Because uh, if we mention the Rai brothers' religion, it suddenly becomes, you know, to counter their truth, it's argued that, well, they were Katris, almost as if all Katris are Sikhs because of Guru Nanak, which we know isn't the truth. Guru Nanak stepped outside the Katri, the caste fall pretty much. Our cutteries don't farm, so that's the thing. So, what happened to the now these Jaspatra and Lakpatra? There was a point of pride with them because they always claimed they were descended from the cutteries who had attempted to kill Guru Nanak the day he had refused to wear the Janu. So, the initial cutteries who opposed Guru Nanak, that's who they were descended from. So, it was a point of pride for for them, you know, because they used to look up. Uh, look down from their noses at the Sikhs that, you know, they used to think Sikhs were barbarians, uncivilized. So obviously they retained a lot of pathological hatred for the Sikhs, but the man who they hated the most with venom, with uncontrollable, immeasurable venom, that was Pai Mani Singh and Amritsar. Now, we do have a physical description of Pai Mani Singh based on contemporary sources, uh, which are uh, cited in Jagjit Singh's Percussions of History. Now, you know the picture we have today of Pai Mani Singh, the <laughs> almost European-looking uh, Sikh Sardar being hacked to pieces? The picture that's very popular is that he's very tall. He's got a flowing white beard and white hair. Yep. Yep, yep. and he's got a, a medium complexion, so to say. Well, in reality, Pai Mani Singh had very dark skin, and it was, you know, you could see by Mani Singh and theorized straight away that he was actually descended from the original inhabitants of India, the ones who were uh, 
relegated to the position of the lower caste when the Aryans came along. Now, here is low caste by Mani Singh. Of course, we don't believe in caste, but we are just mentioning this to provide a historic context. Low caste by Mani Singh is at Amritsar as per the truce negotiated between Zakaria and the Sikhs that Amritsar is impartial ground. Low caste by Mani Singh is at Akal Takht. Low caste by Mani Singh is running multiple schools from the Akal Takht. Low caste by Mani Singh is educating other lower castes and bringing them into Sikhi. Now, what bites the Rai brothers is that the lower castes are now beginning to look down on them and question their education. You know how Pak Ravidas asks that, you know, what makes a Brahmin a Brahmin? It's not like you're born from your mother's nose and I came out of my mother's womb. That's the difference. It's the difference of character, of attitude, and of discipline. And these are found in wholesome qualities in the lower castes because they have untapped potential. They relish the chance to learn and, you know, implement their learning in their daily lives as Pai Mani Singh is liberating them to do. The Rai brothers now, their ancestors, their priests, their convictions are based on controlling the lower castes through the, you know, what is known as the fallacy of the 8.4 million lives karma that, you know, you did something bad in your past life to be born as a lower caste, all that stuff. Now, those... Yeah, all the reincarnation stuff. Yep, now, those chains of Pujarivadi bondage are being broken. They can't tolerate it because ultimately it hits them in the pocket. So, Zakaria turns to them and he's like, look, we got Dili right up our butt again. What can we do now? And they tell him that, look, we need to start something with the Sikhs. We need to instigate them. We need to provoke them. Now, one thing I would like to actually underline here is that, you know, when Nwab Kapoor Singh first became Nwab, his instructions to the Sikhs were, the younger ones, is that go to Amritsar and start rioting. Start fighting among yourselves and, you know, start harassing people. And they started doing exactly what he said. Now, after a short time, he told them, look, stop, come back. And some of them asked him, well, you know, whatever they used to call him, Nwabji or Babaji, Paisa, because he would have preferred Paisa. They asked him, Paisa, what was the meaning of the strategy? And he told them that we attempted to provoke a reaction from Zakaria Khan. The fact that he stayed quiet and tolerated what we were doing indicates to me that he's got something bloody planned for us in the future. He wants us to climb up. Let us just get up there. And when we have alienated everyone around us, then he will finish us off because he will have a justified reason that we were a nuisance. And that was great foresight on his part, to be honest. Yep, a mind of a brilliant leader. A mind of a brilliant leader. So he preempted the situation. Now, of course, in the upcoming episode on him, we will cover the Buddha Dal, Tarda Dal creation part. Anyhow, what Zakaria Khan now does is he decides, okay, so what do we need to do? And the Rai brothers tell him that, you know, Diwali is coming up. And during the Diwali, Sikhs, you know, gather at Amritsar and have their, you know, Sarbat Khalsa, their referendum, their, you know, Republican parliament. What you need to do is that we can uh, surround them. 
And Zakari asks, well, yeah, we can surround them, but that's violating the treaty with them. Now, they wanted to violate the treaty, but they didn't want to be caught doing it. You know, it was a, ironically a Mume Ram Ram Bagal Machuri type of thing. You know, in their mouth, they had the words of God and uh, behind them, they had knives to backstab the Sikhs. So at that time, quite surprisingly, Mani Singh approached them himself and he said, look, uh, we have a deal. We have a ceasefire. We want to hold the Sarbat Khalsa again. We had a clause in our treaty with you that when you were together in large numbers around Amritsar, you would inform us. So there's no untoward incident between our forces and your forces. And it was the same for us. So, Zakaria, we are going together in large numbers. And Zakaria pretty much told him, well, look, Mani Singh, Dili's, you know, always on my uh, butt. It's a pain in the neck. The emperor doesn't trust me. I have had to increase taxation. Can you please ensure that, you know, a certain amount of tax is paid, which is larger than the last time? And Mani Singh said, look, fine then. Now, when the Sikhs start coming over for Diwali, that, you know, festival they're about to celebrate, Jaspat Rai and Lakhpat Rai swing into action. Now, of course, they wanted to provoke the Sikhs and they decided we can provoke them by killing Mani Singh. So how they would kill Mani Singh is this, that, you know, as mid-1734 approaches, everyone's preparing for, you know, what's about to happen in uh, Amritsar. La- Jaspat Rai moves into Amritsar, between Lahore and Amritsar. His excuse for the Sikhs is that, you know, there's a lot of uh, bandits around the area, I want to subdue them. Now, of course, this leaves the Sikhs scratching their heads that, you know, we have taken care of all the, you know, antisocial elements, the criminals around here. Who the hell does he want to subdue? On the other hand, to provoke the, you know, Hindu citizenry of Punjab against the Sikhs, he claims he's there to build a Ram temple and also, you know, guard it from any untoward attacks. By untoward, he was, you know, vilifying the Sikhs. Anyhow... Somewhere along the way, there is a leak of information. Someone comes along and tells by money saying that what they want to do is they want to scare away the Sikhs. Those Sikhs who are scared away will not be able to you know, offer you enough for the tax you need to raise. On the other hand, those who aren't scared, they will be surrounded, Amritsar will be besieged, and they will be killed alongside you. By money saying dispatches urgent message to Nwab Kapoor Singh. Nwab Kapoor Singh organizes an evacuation of the Sikhs. Zakaria finds out. They swoop down onto Amritsar, the Mughals, the Purbias, the Rajputs. They surround it, but they only manage to capture by Mani Singh, his immediate family, and a few hundred other Sikhs. They are taken to Lahore. A kangaroo court is held. All of them are skinned alive, except by Mani Singh, who's actually hacked into pieces. Once his leg and arm are, uh, are gone, his head is cut off. And when Zakaria asks the man who actually cut his head off that, why did you do that? The man turns around and tells him that, did you know, did you see how calm he was when they were about to cut off his wrist? He said, stop, don't cut my wrist. Start from the joints of my finger, because they said, make him into small pieces. If we had allowed him to be cut into pieces wholly, look at all the lower castes watching us. Look at all the non-Sunni Muslims. They will start treating him as a martyr. It's best to kill him now and, you know, cover this incident. 
Unfortunately, they had already made it by Mani Singh and countless others martyrs by then. So this is 1734. Then we have the Sukha Singh Natab Singh uh, incident. They come over from Rajasthan and, you know, slay Masarangar because, you know, what he was doing inside Darbar Sahib. The bastard got his just use. After Masarangar, we have the Pai Bota Singh, Pai Garja Singh incident. Two Sikhs with Kikara the Dande, they take on 200 Mughals, smash the crap out of them before fighting to the death themselves. Then we have the Subeg Singh Shabazz Singh incident, father and son, Charkriya Te Charege. Contrary to the you know animated movie which showed him as being 21 years old, the boy was only 10 years old. So how they were killed was they were tied to one wheel. Another one was brought and this one had iron spikes. Both were spun at the same time. So the one with the spikes shredded the you know individual on the other wheel. That's how they're killed. And then, of course, comes the Shidi of Pai Taru Singh Ji. Pai Taru Singh, who saves a lower caste Hindu woman from uh, being gang-raped. And he's betrayed by Harpat Naranjana, taken to Lahore, where he is scalped. His kakars are removed. But his Sikhi, his internal Sikhi, shines forth, remains defiant. And that's the end of Zakaria Khan. Now, that's where Zakaria Khan has died. He dies around there. And so a battle starts between his sons to succeed him. Right. Well, I've been staying silent for too long. This is the longest I've stayed silent in a podcast. So please continue. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so because this is such a massive big part, there is a massive history behind what happened. So now what happens is that around, uh, we are talking around the 40s, 1740s. What happens is that Zakaria is gone and the supreme power in Punjab, as far as Delhi is concerned, this one comes down to Yahya Khan. I think that's how you uh, say his name. There was Shah Nawaz Khan and there were Yahya Khan. They were the two sons of uh, Adina Beg. Now, Shah Nawaz, he was the Psad Dijar as far as people were concerned. He actually petitioned Ahmad Shah Durani to come to the Punjab. He actually brought the Punjab to Durani's notice. Durani had come along with Nader Shah, hadn't been impressed, but, you know, everyone likes a, you know, item for free, and Punjab was pretty free at the time, given the fact that there was no astute defender to defend it from foreign aggression. Anyhow, the infighting at Lahore between Shah Nawaz and Yahya, that had pretty much broken the Punjabi peasantry's back. Taxes were high, peasants were selling their families, you know, governors and their, uh, you know, subordinates were doing whatever the hell they wanted. All the victims of state tyranny found shelter with the Sikhs. The Khalsa was pretty much that bird whose wings provided refuge to the downtrodden and the dregs of society. Now, October 1745, there was a Sarbat Khalsa. Gurmatas were passed. And that's when Punjab's lower castes came and said, look, we want to see the Khalsa rule over the Punjab rather than the Mughals and the Rajputs. You guys have been doing a good job of, you know, providing us with justice. We want to see you rule. And at this time, because we had the main Buddha Dal and Tarna Dal, these were subdivided into 25 subdals by Nawab Kapoor Singh. Each had a hundred strong contingent consisting of a political and military wing. Yahya Khan was watching this and he ordered the rise to pin the Sikhs and their forest strongholds. So, you know, Jaspat Rai was given the mission 
that you need to ensure the Sikhs stay in the forests and never come out again, because he had uh, lost the will to fight the Sikhs continually. So, March 1746 comes. Near Aminabad, young Jasa has stopped for a few moments. With them are Sikhs who are very hungry. They haven't been able to hunt for the past few days. Their food has run out. And suddenly, Jaspat Rai comes along. Now, he's on an elephant, and he tells them to move off. The Sikhs just ignore him. They tell him, look, we are looking for food in the villages. Give us a few moments. We will bugger off. Now, you know, Jaspat was like one of those kids. You know those kids at school, the ones who start shit, and then they get their ass smacked and run away crying? Professional victims, eh? I know a few of them. Yeah. Now, he was a professional victim. So he decided it would be fun to get a reaction from the Sikhs. So he so you know, he turned around and he said, Oh, look, I'll cut off your hairs and use them to fashion ropes and drag the entire Khalsa to Lahore. And there you guys will be given the five star treatment which Money Singh was. Now, now just a single heard, it, for, sorry, yep. from what I've heard, he told the Sikhs that I will cut off your hair and I will use it to make ropes to tie my horses. Well, whatever he said, he might have said both, but the money sing crip was the one which fired off Jasa Singh Aluwalia. Suddenly, the Sikhs turned and surrounded him and slew his guards, and then he panicked. He panicked and tried running away, but a Sikh actually managed to climb atop his elephant, and then when he challenged him to a fight, Jaspat threw up his arms, and the Sikh youth in question cut off his head with one, you know, swoop of the axe. One swift now, one swift blow. Now, someone might say, given the circumstances at the time, planning and implementing a genocide in one day was, you know, quite easy. On the other hand, though, it might be that there was a pre-planned genocide of the Sikhs anyway, and the uh, Rai's were only biding their time. When Lakhpat Rai heard what had happened, now this is what the Shri Guru Prakash says, he flung off his turban, and swore to annihilate the name of Nanak and the Khalsa from the world. At this time, there was another Khatri, Kora Mal, who was a Sahajatari Sikh, who wasn't you know, physically a Sikh in the sense of the five Kakars. Nonetheless, he and several others went down there, and they, they were descended from clans who had always been sympathetic to the Sikhs. They took off their own turbans and placed them at his feet, begging him to pardon the Khalsa. Now, the way Koramal actually saw these things was he was aware that, you know, Punjab was always under invasion, always under the threat of foreign aggression. The Sikhs were a homegrown alternative which could unite you know, you know, people around him. So the Sikhs could unite people around them. So, you know, rather than relying on Mughals and the like who could be easily picked off, it would be better to, you know, allow the Sikhs to fight for Punjab's freedom as long as they were, you know, left alive and not troubled. Anyhow, Lakhpatrai wasn't going to listen to this logic and he ordered a general massacre of the Sikhs. And we obviously now know how state-sponsored pogroms were initiated throughout Punjab's villages to the fact that, you know, Gore, Jagri, that word was outlawed because it, you know, retained its similarity with Guru. And for the first time in the history of the Sikhs, the Darbar side was entirely demolished. Uh, I'd like to say something here. I have something to say. Yes. 
this genocide or any genocide has to be planned well in advance because a lot of people, well, I would say vast majority, do not understand the logistics behind how a military moves and uh, how how much how strong of a supply line you need to establish, especially back in those days, those days where even finding water to drink was hard. Mm-hmm. You, you have to remember these things. You, you cannot say that uh, a million strong army was chasing us. For such a big number, you, you have to imagine that, that how strong how strong the supply lines were. It means you also have to pull troops from other provinces. Hmm. Yeah. So, so it's a, it's a whole complex military thing. I'm sure you can understand because uh, you know we have discussed this earlier, and uh, your knowledge and your contacts with the military people can, uh, you can you can understand this. But this points need to be made yes. that this genocide wasn't spontaneous. It was well planned. Supply lines were established. Troops were brought in. They probably given train. Probably given uh, a lesson that what exactly are they going to do. And they must have made deals with the the hill chiefs and stuff that if if they run towards you, what you got to do and everything here. So a proper, thoroughly planned genocide holocaust. Yes, obviously there were lines of communication here. We need to remember this was before radio, so they would have they would have had messengers riding up and down the Punjab, you know, communicating in the Shivalik Hills and everything going on down there. So. Yes, obviously, there would have been a lot of uh, groundwork laid for this. This wasn't spontaneous, to be honest. Yes, I agree with that. Now, Lakhpat then turned his attention towards the Dals. The reason for this was that the Dals were the military strength of the Khalsa. So the Dals had probably 15,000 people with them. They also had non-combatants in their ranks. So initially, what they did was they hid in the swamps of Kanuvan, where they were preparing and then the Mughals surrounded them. Now, when the Mughals surrounded them, the fact was Kanuvan's swamps, you couldn't actually go inside in a mass body of men. We had, you know, crocodiles, reptiles, venomous snakes. We had a whole host of problems down there. So it was, you know, when Sherman marched to the south, they had to cut through Florida. They had to get pretty ingenious. Sherman had the time. Lakhpatwai didn't have the time. So well, they decided to do something else now. Kanuwan was a strategic outpost even for the Mughals. As far as the Mughals were concerned, if they ever lost to a foreign aggressor, they could always hide in Kanuwan. But this is where they cut their own arm off. They decided to burn the swamp to the ground to get the seats. When they set fire to the swamp, now Nwab Kapoor Singh is among those 15,000, and you know it's his snap decision as to what to do. He was confronted with the same obstacle which Guru Gobind Singh had when they had to, you know, cross the Sirsa that night. On the other hand, he also had a historic precedent, you know, when Banda Singh Bhadra was in Gurdas Nangal, Banda Singh pretty much confronted the same situation. To stay still is to die, to move forward is to die. What do we do? Now, he decided, he ordered the Sikhs to ford the river Ravi and make a dash for Basoli. And the logic here was that if we stay, all of us will be killed. If we move, only some of us will survive, but survive we will. Unknown to him, Lakhpat was already outside the other side of the swamp, and he started bombarding the you know survivors emerging from Kanuvan with cannon fire. Then again, when they started fighting, now you need to understand that you know everyone, non-combatants, combatants, everyone was fighting in these mini circles, trying to move forward. 
Now, every group, every Jatha had a you know commander who was relayed the instructions, what the overall strategic vision was. How they achieved it was up to them. The poor thing wasn't micromanaging anyone. I mean, even you can understand that, you know, war, that's the first rule of military tactics. You can't micromanage in a war if you're a general. Yep. If you if you look at the Nazi defeat at the end, by the end, Hitler was trying to micromanage them, wasn't he? Well, you, you, you cannot micromanage anything. Although the overall responsibility is on you, you have to give authority to your lower-ranked majors, colonels, and uh, brigadiers to take action because they, they have the they are on the ground. They have access to better information. The, this is what made Eisenhower, Yes, and this is what made Eisenhower able to win the war because he was decisive decisive enough to know that you know everyone has to be allowed to use their own initiative in the hierarchy, and this is exactly what Kapoor Singh did as well. He uh, decided, look. Just follow us, try your best to follow us, and we will try to survive. Anyhow, this wasn't something like, you know, running around with your, you know, imagining, you know, running around screaming your head off. This wasn't that. There was always a strategic plan. No one abandoned the plan. There was no chaos on the Sikh side. But there were heavy casualties because they were inferior in numbers. And here the problem was that this wasn't a pitched battle. There were warriors on horseback but they also had non-combatants, civilians following them who they had to protect. So some were going back to protect civilians and dying under fire. So there was a massive amount of loss down here, which conventionally, conventionally in a military sense is pretty much called unnecessary loss. But for the Sikhs, it was necessary because pretty much they were fighting as well as trying to survive and they had non-combatants accompanying them. And also, they had their families with them. So, of course, you know, if, if there's a five-year-old child or a pregnant woman or maybe a young girl, they can't fight. Mm-hmm. That's the thing. And that's that's what was happening now. When they reached Basoli, unfortunately, the resident Hindus down there had already welcomed Lakshpat and Yahya with open arms. They garlanded them and provided them with alcohol and then they armed themselves and rushed to pursue the Sikh stragglers. Now, they wouldn't confront the warriors, but the stragglers they went after straight away. Now, the Sikh situation was this, that they had a river on their right side, steep hills in front of them, and a blood-crazed foe in the rear, and they had open plains to their left. So they were pretty much hemmed in. And what made what compounded their problem much further was the fact that they had the Pahari Hill Rajas. Now, I believe Bhim Chand had still survived up till this point. They had their forces pinning them in from the plains. Uh, uh, okay, hold on. So you had the hill chiefs who were, of course, always allied with the Mughals. Yes. And... Uh, from what I know, from what I've read in, in the books, that the Sikhs actually tried to run towards the hills. They did. They did. When they came out of Kanuba, Kanuvan, I think that's where Basoli actually came in because Basoli was that last stop in the Punjab and after that it was the hills. So as far as Kapoor Singh could see, you know, tactically Kapoor Singh and the, you know, nine and ten other commanders, 
it was a tactical decision to run into the hills because you would obviously have the high grounds and you had a lot of cover to hide in. But they didn't know that, you know, Lakpat had preempted this and already uh, prepared, a, you can say, sarcastically, a welcoming party for them down there. You could say that there was an ambush ready for them. Yes, there was ambush ready. Now, this is another aspect down here. This is where, again, you need to see. Here is Nwab Kapoor Singh, who's pretty much president of the Pant. There is fighting going all around him. You know, PU Sikhs are being killed. They're falling in great numbers. They're being captured. So what can he do? He has to make snap decisions. This was a day when he made, you know, quite a lot of swift decisions, probably the fastest in his life. You know, he was thinking right on his feet at the moment. They decided that because Basoli's residents had turned against them, they have to, you know, turn around. So they did a about turn. The entire Khalsa did an about turn and rushed the foe, uh, rushed the foe. And after fighting it off, it actually managed to divide itself. So some of the Sikhs escaped into the hill, hills. They would rejoin their, uh, you know, main body after six months. Now, here was the thing. Nwab Kapoor Singh realized that no one knew the way forward. So Sukha Singh, you know, Sukha Singh of Matab Singh and Sukha Singh fame, he was made the head commander of the Sikhs for the time because he was the one who, as the head scout, was to lead them onwards. So he was heavily wounded. His uh, knee was shattered. His uh, arm was broken. Nonetheless, he led them to the eastern part of the Ravi. Uh, they were heavily being pursued, but he knew a secret way down there. And then they've crossed the Bias. Now, the sand on the other side was pretty hot. And the Sikhs actually tore rags from their turbans and tied them under their feet to keep their feet from blistering. For the time being, they were safe. And again, there was an impromptu meeting. And Nawab Kapoor Singh asked Sukha Singh, look, where can we go from here? And he said, Jalandar. In Jalandar, in Dwaba, the lower castes are pro-Sikh. We will hide with them. He led them to the outskirts of Jalandar. Now, unknown to them, Lakpat had lost them, Yahya had lost them, the you know, Pahari Raja had lost them, but there was one more foe who was actually pursuing them, stalking them, and this was Adina Beg Khan and the Rajputs. And once the Sikhs have stopped outside Jalandar, Adina Beg and the Rajputs fell upon them with a desperate furry. Once again, the Sikhs were uh, reassembled and succeeded in outflanking Adina. This time, they finally succeeded in reaching Malva, and there they dispersed among the lower caste peasants. And as for the spoils, now, when Adina Beg attacked them, that's when a large number of Sikhs fell into the enemy hand. So out of the 22,000 Sikhs who set out from Kanuvan Amritsar, 3,000 were captured and taken to Lahore, where they were executed. 10,000 escaped, but 9,000 fell fighting. So we are talking about 12,000 killed in a single day. And our population would probably have been less than 500,000 at the time. So we are maybe talking about 100,000 to 200,000. Probably even under that, because under such heavy persecution of the state, I don't think but many people would have the courage to simply convert to Sikhi. This is the truth. You can read the census. I'm making this point again. A lot of people became Sikhs after 
the Sikhs, has all, Sikhs had already established themselves. Mm-hmm. Now, after a few months, the 25 Dals collected and started attacking Mughal garrisons. They actually hunted down the culprits of Kanuvan, which meant that, you know, they went to Basoli and hunted down the Hindus, the higher caste Brahmins who had, you know, supported the genocide against them. Only Lakhpat Rai remained safe. Then Yahya died and Shah Nawaz came along. Again, there was massive battles against uh, among Lahore and the Sikhs, but this time Koramal came to the fore. And even Adina Beg started touting the pro-Sikh line. Now, the temptation to kill Adina Beg would have been great, but the Sikhs held themselves in check, knowing that he was a Dogla Bandasi, he was two-faced, they could utilize him against his masters if need be. It's but the biggest quite, lessons for, quite quite yep. tragic that how how you, you might actually leave your enemy and use him for, because you have a lot to gain from it. Mm-hmm. Now, there's also a line of thought that Jassa Singh Ram Gariya was actually dispatched as a spy by Nawab Kapoor Singh into Adina Beg's camp to find out, you know, where Adina was, you know, acquiring his uh, military technology from, how he thought and how he, you know, utilized his strategies. And that was what Nawab Kapoor Singh ultimately passed on to the Dal Khalsa, you know, when the missiles were finally formed. And they used that against Adina to great effect. He never forgave Adina, never forgave Jassa Singh Ramgariya for this. Mm. Now, that was an event which happened, and it was a bloody event. However, if you look at it in a solely history, uh, historical context, we can leave it as being a you know source of inspiration for Sikhs, a massacre which happened, a holocaust which happened. What I want to get it though is what lessons can we learn from it? Well, that, that's a massive topic. What lesson can you learn from that particular event or similar events in world history? Mm, that's right. What lessons you can learn from it in similar events in world history? But I guess what lessons can we learn from it? Well, uh, the, the, the very first lesson is, is military. Yes, let's let's, let, let's let's take the theological part out of it first. Yep, and then we could say, okay, looking at it from a military standpoint, what will let's say a veteran of the military observe from it? Okay, so can I share an incident with you, which I recently recently read about? Eisenhower and Patton, they were the first American, uh, they weren't generals yet, they were actually officers, they were the first American military officers to gauge the potential of the tank in battle. And there was actually a period when the, you know, the commander of the American infantry threatened to have Eisenhower demoted if he kept up the tanks are necessary line. But they gauged the tank's potential now, you know, the conventional way how the battle was joined in World War One was that, you know, men would be going against the Germans, they would be fighting, and the tank would come after the men had engaged the foe. So, you know, you would be engaging the foe and the tank would be firing from far away as a, as a you know, artillery aid. The way Eisenhower and Patton actually imagined it, they imagined it as 
on the same line as the Mughal, uh, the Mongols, that the tanks would lead the way and the humans would just do the cleaning up. So yeah, right. this I think, was, uh, yep. I think while while they were having this meeting, Rommel was just hiding and listening to them. <laughs> Possibly. And this was this was actually before World War Two. This was actually before World War Two when uh, Eisenhower was still, you know, struggling to get a frontline commission. Anyhow, it's not that the Sikhs had tanks during the Chotakalukara. But it's the principle of preemption. You need to, you know, it's it's something you see in business leaders as well. You need to preempt the competition by identifying that niche or product which you can, you know, utilize for future effect. And in Noab Kapoor Singh's case, I guess he had already preempted the niche when he realized that, you know, that Nwabi was going to be followed by a massive, massive genocide. So you you have a leader who had enough foresight to predict what was going to happen, but not how it was going to happen. That's lesson number one from my end. Okay. From from my secondly, oh yeah, yeah please continue. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, it's all right. Uh, from my end, I would say that uh, what uh, well, since I've already told you about the, the military standpoint. It's the acute failure of the, let's say, the Mughal forces, the Mughal, the Pahari Raja, or the civilians who cooperate with, with them. Their, their failure to actually complete their, their aim, their target, their objective. You had them encircled, they still escaped. That's a military failure. Mm-hmm. I guess... One thing you need to realize here now, this is something which Genghis Khan and Alexander the Great were pretty famous for. Now, let's take Alexander, for example. You know, now, uh, when he defeated the Persians, I understand, if I remember correctly, the name of the king in question was Darius? Uh, was it Darius or was it Cyrus? Uh, Darius the Great, they call him. Yes, so, you know, now... Alexander had two options down here. One, he could pursue the Persian commanders and generals, or two, he could go after Darius. This was the same with the Quasmerian Shah when Subatai, the Mongol, actually pursued him. Rather than go after the military brains, they actually went after the centralizing uh, aspect of the foe. Now, centralizing mean, meaning someone who can collect all the you know enemy forces around them again. So Alexander decided to finish off Darius because he knew without him, the Persian military intelligence, the brains, the military commanders were nothing. Now, the problem down here with Lakpat and, you know, the Mughals and the Pahari Rajas were they were trying to exterminate all the Sikhs rather than the Sikh leadership. Mm, Good point. And I guess one thing down here you need to remember is that Guru Nanak probably preempted that situation. So by the time Guru Gobind Singh, you know, made the Khalsa what it was, you had this thing that one leader died, another leader would come forward. One leader died, another leader would come forward. Now, Lakpat wasn't aware of that. 
because they weren't aware of, you know, Sikhi's uh, fundamentals. I mean, it's unfortunate that Sikhs today are not aware of their, you know, of, of what Sikhi's political <laughs> fundamentals are. But, you know, Lincoln got assassinated didn't mean that the North lost its spirit to rebuild. You had another president come to the fore. You you see what I mean? So there is always a line of leadership going forward, even if one leader is finished off. But I guess the way, if the Sikh leadership at the time had been hunted down, and look, Bandar Singh Bahadur as a Sikh leader was killed. It took the Khalsa around three decades to, you know, resurrect and come forward again to confront the foe. And in this intermediate time, anything could have happened, given that the Sikhs were on the back foot. But this was a lack of vision on the enemy's part. One thing about Sikh leaders is this, that, you know, when they're fighting, when they're usually winning or about to win, they can convince the foe, effective Sikh leaders, that the foe is about to win. Now, you know, Bahadur Shah was probably convinced that the day he had Guru Gobind Singh Ji assassinated, this is the end of the Sikhs. One year later, he was crouching behind his throne when he learned that Bandar Singh Bhadar was, you know, in the ascendant in the Punjab. True. So to, to continue from your point that you made earlier, that uh, you had leaders available if the current leader, let's say, went away, assassinated, died, or died, fell in the battle. Uh, hmm. I, I think this, uh, I read this example, uh, you know, Bosnian War, the Yugoslav War, yeah? Yes. So the escaping Muslims who were being pursued by the Serbian forces, they actually went through yep. the forest, divided into maybe maybe hundreds of small groups. Yep. So General George Washington actually fought the British, even though he had a smaller army, he never actually confronted the larger part mm. of the army. Yeah. That's, that's exactly the sort of strategy you see Guru Gobind Singh Ji utilizing. Yeah, so my point is, when, when we were encircled uh, in the Chamber of Kanu 1, little, small, yes. multiple small groups of Sikhs were formed and they all tried to escape. So even though one group, or let's say, in the case, one group was finished off, the others would survive. We did not try to leave in a single group or maybe two or three groups as a centralized authority would uh, think? Well, that's exactly what I mean. Now, when the Mongols used to go out on their uh, conquest missions, they always used to divide themselves. Yeah, the region. Obviously, you know, Subutai as the, as the marshal had shared the same strategic vision as Genghis Khan, and he relayed this to the others, but the, or the commanders, because they had uh, Talman's units of 10,000, the commanders of the Talmans had their own, uh, you know, instruction that they could utilize their own initiative to achieve that strategic vision. So, you know, here what I'm saying is that, you know, here the Sikhs are running, they're fighting. It isn't like Noab Kapoor Singh is saying that, you know, Beer Singh Rangreta, you come forward now, bring your people forward, or, you know, Jeevan Singh, you move back. No, he's left it up to them to make their own calls in the field of battle, but as long as they have minimum losses under the circumstances. And, uh, okay. Continuing from, from the same exact point, the exact same thing happened in 1947. Yeah. Yes. When, when, well, I'm not too sure about other people, but I think the listeners can connect to this point. 
when our ancestors or when our people, I use the better word, our people, they had to escape what's now Pakistan. Let's say they escaped from Sialkot or Gujaranwar or Chekupara or Lyalpur or Montgomery districts, maybe even Multan. They, they formed a group from each village or a few village got together and then they formed a larger Jatha or a Kafla. Yep. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. These things repeat over yes. and over. Yes. These, these yes. things, these basic principles don't change. Hmm. Now, you know what I find, I guess it sort of bites me, hits me in the heart, given that, you know, I have that, you know, interest in history as a hobbyist. Look at West Point. West Point is the culmination of the entire American military experience in the past 300 years. Yep. And, you know, George Washington learned the arts of battle on the foot, really. He was on the go when he actually learned all these lessons. Obviously, you know, you can read a book or today listen to a podcast about military strategy, military history. Doesn't mean you become a military general, an effective general overnight, unless you, you know, put them into play, tweak them to your uh, needs and, you know, implement them using your initiative. It's such a massive shame that the Sikhs were never able to preserve their own state or otherwise imagine a Sikh military academy today imparting those very same lessons to a new generation of Sikh generalship and command today. And you will have an AK-47 made out of Sarbalo. <laughs> well, I mean, given the present, you know, envisioning, obviously that might be a dream someone has. But I mean, on a more serious note, imagine a Sikh, you know, variation of West Point. Now, let's just leave that aside. Okay, let's leave that aside. That's my dream. But... No one so far has actually come along and analyzed all these conflicts and derived lessons from them, you know, lessons from Sikh commanders themselves. Now, you have Nuab Kapoor Singh in the thick of battle. You know, he's he Nuab Kapoor Singh isn't Churchill or, you know, Roosevelt or, you know, any other president or prime minister today who's sitting in his office. Now, the greatest war we have seen, our generation, is the war on terror. Bush was in his office when that war was being conducted. Obama was in his office when that war was being conducted. Clark was in her office when that war was being conducted. Blair was in his office when that war was being conducted. They had computer screens around them, advices, real-life information coming in. On the other hand, you have Nuab Kapoor Singh surrounded by his bodyguards. He's fighting, they're fighting, and he's still making decisions. Just imagine the discipline that man must have had head and the mental strength you know you're you're psychologically being oppressed by the stench of death by the den of the battlefield by the people falling around you who knows maybe he lost his close companions and maybe members of his family that day but the man is standing there fighting comes back into his bodyguard uh you know his enclosure makes a strategic decision moves forward just imagine that decision making process oh. You also have to remember when the Sahabzadans fell in battle and Gurgobi Singh just walked past them without giving giving them a look. Can can you, can, you know, mm-hmm. we, often, we often talk about the military leaders of, or maybe great generals and 
uh, kings and everything about for, foreign countries and foreign, foreign histories we got to take a look at our, at our own mm. just that's imagine right, that's right now just imagine their, their state of mind yep. Yep, and currently I'm reading a book on Eisenhower by uh, John Wokowitz. It's, uh, you know, on famous military generals in history. Imagine such a book on Nawab Kapoor Singh. Surely they would focus on what was going on in his mind during the Vadaka Lukar. Oh, sorry, I mean the Chotaka Lukar. Well, m- m- maybe in the future somebody might write it, and maybe there is a possibility that those books might be read by some military general or, or maybe let's say a young soldier in some in some distant land obviously but i mean as of the present in the current context you know look at that military look at that leadership overall though look at those leadership skills which nawab kapoor singh and you know all the khalsa commanders at that time must have had had you know so they're fighting and then they're making decisions on the go fighting making decisions on the go they're on horseback themselves they're equally tired fatigued hungry and wounded that's that's saying something uh well uh, not even that you have to remember the horses they had hmm do you think they had maybe mustangs or colts running around with the polished coats you know had they had the whole shoes with excellent saddles and the side bags and everything no their horses must have looked like donkeys Mm-hmm. So, uh, under extreme circumstances when i ex- say extreme i mean extreme i mean you're not not too sure what are going to eat today or drink today or maybe if you will live to see the sunrise tomorrow mm-hmm. so even under under those circumstances the extremist of the extreme if I, if i if i say that if i may say that they still managed to lead sikhi mm-hmm. they still managed to lead our people they still managed to stay intact they did not negotiate with their principles and they still managed to succeed hmm it's it's an entire it's an entire that, that topic in itself nawab kapoor singh we need to prepare a lot for it seek leadership of that times we do now we can we can take lessons from that leadership which unfortunately we don't do today well, it's not even that if you read about these people the leaders of their time it's probably like half a page okay this person existed he was there yes, he was no, there then he died and then okay next page i mean people see a picture of nawab kapoor singh and mistake it for baba deep singh they just don't know who nawab kapoor singh is today because you know the current leadership doesn't want to be like him now you know look at the sikhs at the time they had the spirit and everything yes but it's the leadership which counts the leadership which brought them out of that you know kalukara now i have a question for you as well let's just theorize lincoln got voted in for a second term when the civil war was going on roosevelt i believe got four terms three almost in world war 2 churchill got a second one Why is it that during times of conflict people don't want to change their leaders? Well, because uh, it, it, a new leader might totally flip the strategy. And because I mean, I guess here it's explainable that you know Nawab Kapoor Singh never started the conflict. The conflict was ongoing. You know, the Chota Kalukara, we can't see it as an individual event. It's interconnected with the persecution of the Sikhs and the Sikhs at the time would have been aware of it. That's why they never raised the question that you know 
he could have done something better or he couldn't have done something better. But, you know, after the Kaluka, right, it's amazing that no one ever raised any questions on his leadership. Well, there was no question to be raised. He, he proved himself. Mm-hmm. There's the fact. Now, another aspect down here is he chose Sukhasing. You know, he instantly chose Sukhasing. He said, bring Sukhasing forward. Sukhasing, lead us into Jalandar. You know the way. Now, Sukhasing wasn't a commander at the time. He was one of the rank and file, you know, famous for his exploits. But more or less, he was a sort of a special forces type of, you know, Singh in the, you know, greater body of the Dal Khalsa or the Dals at the time. Now, here's an incident I want to, you know, recount. We can take leadership lessons from the past. Now, last year during the lockdown, uh, the Prime Minister of New Zealand, Jacinda Ardern, her health minister, David Clark, at the time, broke the lockdown rules. And right? he did? And she was too busy defending him on stage. Down here, Nuab Kapoorson looks around, realizes that rather than choose a, you know, incompetent person, let's choose a person who is competent. And I guess, well, you know, Aden was trying to defend Clark. It also raises the question in light of, you know, what Nuab Kapoor Singh was doing, you know, trying to choose competent individuals. What are the lengths you go to to defend incompetency? And what does that mean for your leadership? Well, the first word that comes to your mind is dishonesty. Hmm. Uh, you, you have incompetent people. We don't exactly know what's exactly happening in, in the particular case you gave the example. But to defend an in, incompetent person or incompetent, let's say, minister or maybe a military officer or something, that's just straight up dishonesty. Hmm. Hmm. And the current incident, as I understand now down there, is that uh, the Ministry of Health actually had some guidelines for, you know, people who got, you know, uh, tested for the coronavirus. These guidelines say that if you were a casual contact, whatever that is, you don't need to isolate. Two individuals who had the virus actually did follow those guidelines. And ultimately, the virus spread. There was a lockdown, and now they're being blamed for it. And there's a lot of uh, back and forth between the Prime Minister and them. And that's another thing down here is that it seems that the virus down there is getting through the borders, but, you know, no one's actually asking those questions, what's happening at the borders, whether it's the blame on the ground. Now, you know, if you have a system in place, that system is to prevent people from coming into contact with something. So, you know, rather than rely on the people exclusively, why are you trying to cover up what's, what failings you have by blaming the people anyway? Well, it's a very, very simple solution. You need to go to the beehive in Wellington and you need to give Jacinda a hug. And you know, this is the, <laughs> well, this is the solution to everything. Just hug it out. I mean, those are the questions we have, leadership lessons we are talking about, and they apply to just about every leader. Now, Nwab Kapoor Singh had a system down here, which was that, you know, we need to save as many people as possible. End of the day, he never turned around and said, it's Sukha Singh's fault, it's so-and-so's fault, it's so-and-so's fault. And who knows, he might have actually, you know, presented his resignation. But, you know, he would have been told that you actually had no other alternative and you did the best you could. And we are very happy with that best. Yeah, 
yeah, please stay on. All this needs to be discussed and researched, and nobody has done it, and that's a tragedy. That's that's a tragedy because now you know, Chota Kalukara, these events we can take lessons from them. We need to take lessons from them if we need to progress further, but we never do. That's that's the unfortunate thing about us. Our opponents know our history much better than us. Well, growing up in Punjab and uh, since from your childhood, you will have all the ragis and tadis. Well, every time Chotakalukara was mentioned, it, it was just to get you emotionally charged. They would just say, okay, our, mm-hmm. our kids were murdered, our women were murdered, men were murdered. And it's all just high tales, it's just, just emotional drama, like the soap operas and everything. But if you talk to them, what's the lesson? They don't know. And you can easily see that when the Vadaka Lukara happens, this time around, even before the Vadaka Lukara happens, and you can see that you know, Nawab Kapoor Singh is dead, but he would surely have recognized his strategy at work. The Dal Khalsa acts preemptively. It takes out all potential and possible foes who it believes could you know, turn on it when it's weakened. The Marathas are weakened by the Dal Khalsa, the Rajputs are weakened by the Dal Khalsa, and ultimately the battle now, during the Chota Kalukara, you had the Rajputs, you had the Purbias, and you had the Mughals. During the Vada Kalukara, you pretty much only had the Afghans versus the Sikhs. Mm-hmm. So there were lessons learned, but unfortunately they haven't actually come down to us. Yeah, they haven't. And I guess it's high time now that if you want to make a mark, now it's pretty easy for us to say we're a martial race. We have a military history. The commanders, the global commanders, the commanders of the world, how many do you think actually know about Sikh generals and Sikh military figures? Well, we don't know. Um, they might. We, we don't know. They might. But uh, well, since the fact is that people, there's, there's a very uh, simple observation or a simple point. People say, yes. know the enemy. Know the enemy. Now, I don't believe that any military commander today, foremost commander, would be aware of the you know lessons we can derive from the battles of Guru Gobind Singh Ji or Nawab Kapoor Singh Ji and other Sikh figures. And it's our duty today to impart those lessons further. And I guess if any military scholar is listening to this, and quite a lot of Sikh military figures do listen to us, then please, please focus your attention on this aspect as well. And not just, uh, well, military lessons are not just for military, they're, they're for business people as well. They're for all walks of life. You know, if you want to be a you know, strategic leader, you know, identify who you can give the tasks to and everything. Really long talks we can have on this, but ultimately the thing is people need to be proactive themselves. We can only put them to the right way, orient them in the right direction. They need the heart and conviction to do what, you know, they Are need to do. Are you telling me that chanting Vaiguru Vaiguru all day isn't enough? Do you really oh, well, need to maybe, ask? Maybe millions, <laughs> people do, millions of people do this. That's enough. I, I've just posted Vaiguru to you on every single picture I see you on Facebook. Yeah, that's enough. No, that isn't enough. I don't think Nawab Kapoor Singh would have done that. He actually stood his ground and fought the Sikhs who participate, who were, you know, set upon in the Chota Kalukara, they fought, everyone fought. 
how many rows we saved them. Think about it. No, we also have to, well, kind of remember or maybe think that how many, how many texts, original texts could have been destroyed or lost there in the swamp or crossing the river. Yes, and you know, when the Barsa was demolished, a token presence of Sikhs held off the foe to the last men until the others escaped. No one made their last or final stand from the Barsa. Nuab Kapoorsan could easily have done that, but he never did. He lived to fight another day because he appreciated his role as a leader. It's not just live to fight another day. Uh, Ultimate this, yep. this this last stand fight to death. I think it it, it doesn't exist in Sikhi because uh, death has no value. What you do as, mm. as a live while living as a human being is what matters. Mm -hmm. Now, ultimately, that's all the time we have for today. And I guess in the future, now I've just had a question pop up that you know what can we do now. When people ask me what can we do, I mean, that's where I get confused as well, that, you know, everyone has a different talent, a different skill set to do what they need to do. So, you know, if you want to actually impart these lessons further, I mean, say you're a lawyer, you need to, you know, take these lessons and fashion them to your field. And, you know, given that I'm a builder or a soldier, we need to sort of fashion these lessons you, in that you context. Could say, However, to ask yeah, what can we do. Or very simple, yeah. you could say, you I mean, could to say ask, just two words, read and understand, or try to understand. Read and understand. Now, to ask us, yep, so please don't ask us what can we do, because really come with a, come to us with a solution that it's, this is what I'm simple. going to do. You first read about these things, to try to understand these things, which is because we are aware that not a, not a lot mm. of work has been done on it, and there's not enough material to read on it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, I guess I apologize for the noise from my end as well, because, you know, it's the lockdown's being lifted. So there's a lot of, uh, quite a lot of noise on the street outside because people are so damn happy that the lockdown is lifted. Oh, yeah. Uh, I'm on the farms as well. So there's some commotion on the roads. So there might be some disturbance in my, my background as well. Yep. Yeah. Yep, uh, yes, so we both of us apologize for that. Now, as far as we are concerned, regarding the Facebook group, there were a few questions that why aren't people being admitted? We have a very strong policy regarding who we admit. We just need to verify you're genuine. Other than that, we are also writing on our blog on Substack. So if anyone needs to read that, they're free to read it because we will always be delivering quality information free of charge. And, and I, I would request people to the listeners and whosoever read the blogs to dare to ask questions and uh, to do some research on their own. Essentially, essentially commit the thought crime. You're not stepping on a landmine. You're actually jumping into a minefield while doing Pangara. Yep. So do the thought crime. It was a thought crime which brought Jaspat and Lakpat Rai onto the Sikhs, but the Sikhs stood their ground. Once you commit yourselves, stand by it. The Sikhs who died in the Chota Kalukara were committed to Sikhi. The leadership who fought to the last man were committed to Sikhi. So be committed to Sikhi. That's the main lesson we can take from this event. Mm -hmm.